Father, first I, I want to come to you and pray for Omar as he is even now at that facility and he is just trying to follow after Allah. I pray that you would work on him, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, lead and guide him into truth. For, Father, if there is no truth, there is no certainty. And I ask that you would just give him wisdom to discern right and wrong, good and evil, and your word as compared to the Quran. I ask also, Lord, that you would bless your word as it goes forth here, this book of Hebrews. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight as to your will for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we left off in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and it deals with the scripture, which is also known as the word of God. Verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And the word translated for sword here means a short sword or a dagger. And it's meant to do harm. It's meant to protect that type of thing. And the word is a discerner or it is a critic of the attitudes of our hearts. And so when we read it, it exposes things to us. Now, sometimes literary works will do that. But the Bible declares that it is active and that it is living. And so as opposed to any other book throughout all of history, when you open it up with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, whether he comes alongside and teaches us or he indwells us, we can know right and wrong, good and evil, and our attitudes if they are pure or if they are impure. Uh, Many times I think we act with all sincerity, but we are sincerely wrong in our held beliefs. Uh, For instance, uh, I have family members, one aunt in particular, she believes in reincarnation, and she is very sincere about the fact that reincarnation exists. Scripture says it does not. And if you were to be inside the church and active inside the church and you're teaching that um, this reincarnation was a valid doctrine, you would be holding to what is known as heresy. The scripture does not teach that. We know that Hebrews chapter 9 verse, uh, what is it, 27? It says that it is appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. I think it's 27. It's either 27 or 29. It is appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment, which means we get one chance in this life. We don't do repeat. It's not Groundhog Day that just keeps on cycling through and we come back as either an animal or an insect or a person and we have to keep on doing it till we get it right, until the karma works itself out. Scripture says, no, that's not the case. Paul said he would desire rather to be with the Lord and absent from the body, which means when we die as believers, we go directly to heaven. But those who who are not believers, who have not asked Jesus Christ for life and forgiveness of sins, they don't go to heaven. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. But this idea that the word of God is active and it's sharper, it's living, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. When we read it, we realize we are in error. Like for instance, uh, remember we've done the good person test in here. The good person test, I will ask somebody, 
Have you ever stolen anything? And everybody has stolen something at some time, taken something that was not there. When we read the Bible, it says, thou shall not steal. And we steal, we find that we are a thief, right? When it says, uh, you should not take God's name in vain. Who in here hasn't taken God's name in vain at some point, whether it's with an use of an expletive with that or just saying his name uh, in a way that's not respectful or worshipful or instructional. If we do that, we're using his name in vain and God says his name is holy and we're not supposed to do that. Or what about coveting? Have you ever wanted something that somebody else had? You know, I want that. Well, that's coveting. We find we are guilty. And God says, thou shall not covet. And if we break just one of those commands, then we are guilty. And that's what the word of God does. It tells us we have fallen short. Now, the obvious question arises, well, why should you trust the Bible? Remember that list I told you about? First, you have the accuracy of the Bible, that it was transmitted accurately from the times of old until today. The other thing is the Bible, as I've mentioned previously, the Bible is 25% prophetic. No other work in all of history is prophetic, which means it had to come from outside our time domain, so, so to speak. It had to come from some transcendent source and be revealed to us, which means God actually authored it. If you can find another book, another writing, another piece of papyri that talks about a prophecy and actually coming through, through and not like Nostradamus, his are very vague. When Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament that he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. It says that, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. It said that he would be born in Bethlehem, right? He was born in Bethlehem. It told us that he would be crucified. It describes his crucifixion. And it happened exactly as it was said, and that they would part his garments. And that was hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. So that's why we can trust it. And if all of these things have come to pass, and he tells us about these future events that are going to take place, we should trust him. There's no other document that does this. So God's word is sharper, it's active, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And we're supposed to use this word to examine ourselves. It's for our benefit. David, when he wrote the Psalm in 139, verse 23 and 24, He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Now, we used to sing this as a song in church. And what the psalmist was saying is, I'm going to read your word and examine myself by it. And if you see any wicked ways in me, Lord, reveal it to me through your word, which I am reading. If we don't read the word, we don't know of our wickedness. And that's what the word is meant to do. Now, with this, there's an issue. There's a danger. We see ourselves as we really are, but then it's incumbent upon us to change once we see that. And there are some people who get the truth, and they go, wow, this is, this is true. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to fall in line, but there's no grace. You ever seen somebody like that? You ought not to be doing this. And if the person says, you're right, well, you're such a sinner. Well, you're right, I am a sinner. Yeah, you better never forget it. And you're forgetting the grace. When you learn the truth, because we are also subject to the same sins, when we learn the truth, we give grace to the individual who says, I know, I'm a sinner. Oh, Lord, uh, the Lord will forgive you for that. Or you can have all grace without truth. Some people like to go around in the world, just love them. 
forget about all that doctrine stuff. Just love them. No, God is all loving, but he's also all just. He must judge every single trespass, sin, or debt. He has to judge it because that's his character. He is free to judge it, I should say, rather. But grace without truth, if you just say, oh, God will forgive him. No, he doesn't do that if you just say there's no repentance. Remember, God calls us to repentance. And repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. When we find out what God wants for us, he says, Call on the Lord and you will be saved. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Baptism is a work that follows salvation that we're supposed to be obedient as disciples to carry out. But this idea of repent, once, like if you're reading the Ten Commandments and you says, and it says, thou shalt not commit adultery, that means, well, you thought it was okay before, but now our will has to conform with God's will. That's the idea that's listed here. And sometimes people, Christians, you know, we've made so many mistakes over the centuries where we just force people. For, you must submit to this. And we forget the grace. We're, we're not graceful towards them. Or we have all this grace. We have no truth. There's a lot of this that took place, especially in the 80s and 90s, and it's becoming even more prevalent now. Don't hate, Right? That's hate speech. Oh, it's so hateful. You just need to love. That is love to point out if somebody is erring, right? What if um, a child grows up to be a teenager and they want to experiment with drugs? Is it hateful to tell them they don't have the freedom to do something? No, it's full of love to tell them, don't do this. You'll protect yourself. Or when it comes to love... You instruct your kids as they're growing up, say, be careful with your heart, protect it. It is the wellspring of life. Make sure that you're doing all you can to protect it. And then the heart just opens up and it gets hurt over and over. And you tell them that not to spoil the fun, but what ends up happening is hurt, pain, and sorrow. And we want to spare people this. So this danger of reading the word, we can have this truth without grace or we can have grace without truth. Now, going on with this, it is living and it is active. It means that it is alive and it is powerful. It is sharper than a double-edged sword, which means it speaks of judicial punishment. It is a separator is what it does. It gives us clarity. It divides the soul and spirit. And scripture says we are a trinity ourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 reads, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a soul. Everybody has a soul. That's who you are. Now, your body is the outward tent of that soul. And when we get saved, we are made alive by the spirit. Our spirit is revived. Remember in the day that Adam ate the fruit thereof, he would surely die. It was the spirit that died, and we are revived in that when we are, quote-unquote, born from above or born again. In John chapter 3, it talks about that when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. And so we have this body, soul, and spirit, and these three things we are made up of, and the word of God can divide that. It can divide between a soulish attitude and a spiritual one. If you go to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7 says, the things that I want to do, I cannot carry out. I cannot do. Which means if I want to do right all the time, I can't do right all the time because I have this flesh with me, right? And the things that I want to do, I'm prevented 
and the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Those are the very things I get involved in. When scripture says, well, don't sin in this particular area, then I go and I run to it, right? And Paul said, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so when we have these soulish attitudes, like it's okay to be angry without a cause, you know, we do that sometimes, or to speak about somebody in a gossiping fashion. The Lord says, no, that is wrong. And our spirit bears witness when we are saved. And we say, yeah, that's, that's not good. That's not good to do that. I told my granddaughter just the other day, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all, right, about somebody. That's what I told her. And I've tried to explain to her that you just need to make sure that whatever comes out of your mouth is full of grace and hope and truth and benefits those who are around. Now, if we can control that, we have become perfected in our walks. And so the word will reveal to us our motivations. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And I love it in the King James Version. Our hearts, you know, you ever heard somebody say, Oh, they have such a pure heart. Or kids, Oh, they're just so pure. No, they're not. I know of a young a young child who just told a big lie, but he was caught in the middle of the line. Oh, you know, he hung his head down, and, and things just weren't good. And the heart desired to be deceitful. And so the little child, the little boy, was deceitful in what he had to say. And we want to do that. We want to protect ourselves. If an attack comes towards us, we want to defend ourselves for soulish reasons, but our heart wants us to be deceived so we don't fall in line with the word of God. Our bodies, our flesh, we are contrary to what God wants for us. And all God represents that is in his word is all good, it is all holy, and it is all just. We and the state we're in, even after we get saved, our flesh wants to take over. And we're supposed to crucify that every day. Now, I don't know if you've ever gotten a visual picture of this, you know, crucifixion. One thing you know, if somebody's carrying a cross, they're not coming back, right? The second thing you know is they're going to suffer. And God says, do that to your body. Now, I'm not talking literally here, okay? Some people take this literally. What I'm talking about is on the inside, it's a battle. When we know the good we ought to do and we don't do it, it is called sin. And so we're supposed to take that body and wrestle with it and crucify it. Now, if we can gain that advantage over the flesh we have won half the battle down here and this has to do with discipleship this doesn't make us any more holy or not holy god does all of that but he says he will reveal to us our intents and our attitudes it will show us clearly what those are so god with his word removes us from the self-centered life and that is our problem in this country how self-focused do you think the people in this country are. Now, I'm part of this country, right? We all are. I'm not pointing at you or anybody in specific. Just as a country in general, with what is out there in the media, how self-focused are we? And it goes all the way back to our founding, Frank Sinatra. He wasn't at the founding, but what did he say? I did it my way right? That is our focus. We want to do things our way. We don't want to be told that this is right or wrong. Just leave me alone. And so this word of God comes in and says, 
Don't have that attitude. Make sure we are humble. Make sure that we are crucifying the flesh. And it is finally a judge or a critic of our thoughts and attitude. God not only knows our thoughts, but the motivations behind our thoughts. We may have thoughts to do well, and we are probably deceived because our flesh naturally deceives us. It's a natural course of events. But God will show us clearly again what right and wrong is in verse 13 it says nothing in all creation is hidden from god's sight everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes of him to whom we must give an account now god knows everything he knows what we're thinking now all day long you carry on a conversation with yourself did you know that sometimes you verbalize it sometimes you say no yeah, that'd be good. And you're all by yourself. Nobody's around. And you might say, who are you talking to? I'm talking to myself. Don't you talk to yourself? You carry on a conversation with yourself all day long. What you're going to do, where you're going to go in the house, how you're going to drive, that person who's the driver up there. Oh, I can't believe Who are you talking to? Myself. I'm talking to myself. We carry on this conversation. And we want to make sure that We even keep those thoughts in check. If we don't keep those thoughts in check, they have a tendency to run, right? It's kind of like the slippery slope. In politics or religion, if you go into false doctrine, if you start a little bit, you just start sliding down. It's a slippery slope. And so you want to make sure you take every thought captive, as the Word of God says. And so if we do that, we understand that in the future, if we're able to corral these thoughts and attitudes... God will one day reward us for that. Now, with the Christian, we get a reward. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says, If you have served well, you have done these kinds of works. And it talks about the reward that we get when we get to heaven. And these are not literal. These are metaphorical. When you get to heaven, there is going to be works. And we're going to, I'm going to speak metaphorically here. It's piles. You have these piles. Wood, hay, stubble gold silver and precious stones now that's how god describes it he says these are the works of the flesh that are self-motivated these are the works over here that are completely pure in their motivation sacrificially done in an attitude of humility god says that when we get there wood hand stubble gold silver and precious stones that the fire of god again speaking metaphorically is going to cast itself over all of these works and the wood hay and stubble what's going to happen to them they're going to burn up what's going to be left gold silver and precious stones and this is called the bema seat or the bema seat of christ in second corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 this is the word in the greek it's bema but it says for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ this judgment seat is bema that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And so the bad things would be the wood hand stubble. The good things would be the reward. And that's what we get for our reward is the gold, silver, and precious stones. When we get to heaven, there's going to be some people like an uh, uh, elderly woman who prays all day long and intercedes for everybody. She probably has mounds of gold, silver, and precious stones and very little wood hand stubble. That's not to say that her youth did not pile up a lot of that. It could have been, but she has great reward as she gives her life to Christ. God is going to reward her as a believer. That's the Bema seat. Now, if you recall, the Bema seat is what uh, Caesar would be on when he would declare somebody the victor of a race in the Olympic Games. 
and they would get the wreath and they would get a lifelong exemption from paying taxes to the Roman government if they won in the games, right? That seat that he was on was the Bema seat or the Bema seat that was up there. That is not the same as the seat in which God will judge the rest of the world. Well, now we know that God says only a few are going to make it to heaven. He says, wide is the road that leads to destruction and many there be that go in that direction. Now I'm paraphrasing here, but narrow is the road that leads to life or salvation or to heaven and few there be that find it. And so he says, out of all the people that have ever existed, the number of people that are going to go to heaven are small in comparison to all of humanity because all of humanity is narcissistic into self-direction, into self-love, into self-adoration. And so therefore they cannot come to God because it requires us to divest ourselves of ourselves. And there's going to be a judgment for all of those people. And this is called the second resurrection. First resurrection is the Bema seat. When we go to heaven, God is going to bring all the believers. And of course, this is in accordance with the rapture of the church, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, John chapter 14, and the book of Isaiah. It all talks about the rapture. Flash and a twinkling of eye, we're going to meet the Lord in the air and be with him forever. But those who are going to be raised at the great white throne judgment happens at the end of time here on earth. Now, why do I believe all this? Because the Bible is 25% prophetic and many hundreds of prophecies have already come to pass. And that same God who wrote those wrote also that the great white throne judgment is coming. Now, at the great white throne judgment, everybody gets resurrected who has ever existed. How many people is that going to be? Billions and billions of people. It might even hit trillions. Because before the flood, antediluvian existence of the human race, it is thought that the population that we have now rivaled that before the flood, that that many people died during the flood. Some people say, the flood didn't take place. That's just an epic story. I'm sorry, on every continent throughout the earth, there's evidence of a worldwide flood. The fossil record is, you, you see where a flood comes through and it takes all these fossils and packs them into one place. And how did that happen? It's because there was a worldwide flood. God said it took place, right? And so why should I believe that? Because the Bible is 25% prophetic and he said this thing would happen in the past came to fruition in the future and so you better pay attention to what's in the future ahead of us right and so this great white throne judgment is going to happen everybody gets resurrected that means everybody comes back to life in the bodies that they now exist in those who go to the bema seat they get new bodies they're going to be glorified bodies They're never going to die. There's never going to be a problem. But the people who are resurrected to the great white throne judgment, God says in the book of Revelation that he's going to open up books and the people's names are going to be in there. Or even more so, they're not going to be in there. Revelation 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that is where 
somebody hears that, it's like, okay, we get two choices when we die, right? We either get to go to heaven or we choose to go to hell. And that's how it works. If you choose not to accept Christ, you choose to go to the great white throne judgment and ultimately to the lake of fire. Those people who do not have Christ, when they die, they don't go to be with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, they go to what is known as Haiti or the grave. Sheol is what it was called in the Old Testament. And then you have the the lake of fire, which is the ultimate end of the dead. And they exist there forever, according to Matthew chapter 26. What is it? 26, 25 verse 46. I think that's what it is. If you look it up, 26 verse 46 or 25 verse 46. It says that hell and life, eternal life and eternal punishment are forever. And so God tells us that we're going to be judged as we just read in the book of Hebrews. He's going to have us give an account. And so each one of us individually, and I don't know how this is going to take place. It could take millennia for each person to stand before the Lord as we're watching everybody be judged. I don't know that it's going to happen that way. He just says he's going to judge us. And so we have to stand before God, our maker, and say, this is what I did, and this is why I did it. And God will judge. You spoke rightly, or you spoke incorrectly. That's not what we have here in the books. Let's see, back in 2015, didn't you do this, and this was your motivation? And, of course, we're going to have to give an account. Like, yeah, I did do that. But those who are saved, there are even be people at the great white throne judgment, I believe, who will be saved. Like, for instance, the people who died during the millennial thousand-year reign of Christ. When they die... They'll be resurrected again at the great white throne judgment and they'll be saved. And if they've done all of these things that are wrong, God said, didn't you do this in 2015 and aren't you guilty of this? They will say yes, but I believe in Jesus Christ as my savior. Ah, that's it. Your sentence is commuted. You have no sentence. Enter into your rest, right? Is what he'll say. But only for those who submit themselves to God. That's how the scripture is laid out for us. Now he's talking to those in the book of Hebrews who are Hebrews. And he goes on to say in verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you understand what this means. Remember the Old Testament had a high priest. It was Aaron who was the first one. And it was his job to go between man and God. He was the intermediary. And he was only a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate intermediary to come. So since all these truths are here, we're going to have to give an account. We have somebody who intercedes for us. And we, it says in Scripture that the Holy Spirit does this with groans that cannot be uttered. And so since we know who Jesus is, he is the intermediary, and he intercedes for us to the Father... So that God's grace comes to us, let us hold firmly then because we have this mediator. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So Jesus... Or this speaks of Jesus being a superior high priest to that of the Mosaic Covenant, which Aaron was a part of, and that he has gone through the heavens and he is able to sympathize with us. He has the ability to extend compassion to those who are being tempted. And it says, let us enter boldly to the throne of grace. 
Which means if, if you go back to the Old Testament, now remember I've told the story before that the high priest, he would have the bells on and he'd go into the Holy of Holies and if the bells stopped ringing, they would pull him out with a rope. Come to find out that's not true. Uh, he wouldn't have the particular garment that had the bells on it. Uh, when he would go into the Holy of Holy place. And so if he had no bells, no rope, there's no reason to pull him out. There's no record of that. I did some research on it. That wasn't the case. But when he would go in there, Scripture said at the one day of the year, Yom Kippur, he was poured blood on the mercy seat. And if you remember what the mercy seat was, you have this Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, and manna. Manna was in there. And so he was supposed to go in there once a year, take blood of a sacrifice, and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which had two angels with its wings. Their wings were going towards the center. Their head was dipped, right? And that's what they would do once a year. And when he went in there, it says in Scripture, if you don't do this right, you're going to die. So as the high priest is going in there, what does the high priest do? Let's see. Got the garments. I'm good. Got the blood. Good. I took a bath. It's all good. Sacrifice has been made. It's good. Okay, I'm going in. You know, and he opens the curtain and walks in there. A little bit of trepidation, a little bit of worry. God, I'm here. I think I've done everything right. We're good, right? And so he sprinkles the blood on there, and then he comes out. That's once a year. Now, if we go into the Holy of Holies as believers, it says run boldly. What does that mean? Uh, just imagine a little child. Have, have you guys seen that new, uh, the news broadcast where the, the uh, commentator is up there and the little kid comes in on the little cart, you know, those uh, little training walkers and has the wheels all around the bottom and you just place the child in it and they go all the way around the room. Well, in a live broadcast, the little baby comes in to the back door and just sliding across, sucking on a little binky. And then you see the babysitter come in and, oh no, you know, and the live broadcast is going on. She pulls the little child and she backs away like that. The little child has no concept that there's something going on like that. Or in an office of a high and mighty CEO, the little child can just run right in. God tells us since we have this priest now, as believers, we can run right into the Holy of Holies with boldness to receive grace and mercy. We, we do not have to worry like the high priest as he would go in. You know, and it calls us a kingdom of priests in Scripture. We don't have to go in and worry, is God going to judge me? We have God's grace and mercy that is extended to us. And so if we've committed all these sins according to the word of God that is sharper than a double-edged sword and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, if we know we're guilty, we say, God, I'm guilty, I need your grace. Run right into the throne and he will give it to you. It's the person that says, I'm good, you're good, there's no need. I don't have any sin. I don't have to do that. You know, it's one of these things of walking in an attitude of repentance, which means I need to change my attitude. I need to change my action. I need to go in another direction. Just walking in that all the time. Not falling under condemnation. Romans says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we have this grace freely available. And you might say, but I blow it so much. I just told a lie and I knew it was a lie, but I did it anyhow. As long as you turn to God and he goes, you're forgiven. As long as you say, God, forgive me. That was so stupid of me. He goes, I know. 
but you're forgiven. It's okay. I stole this thing just a couple of months ago and I shouldn't have done it. God, I'm so sorry. Well, you know, yeah, it was wrong, but here's some grace and here's some mercy. Well, how many times can you do that? How many times would you do that for your child? If I have to come in there one more time, you know, as a parent, you're, I'm sick and tired of having to tell you this over and over. When are you going to listen to me and learn? God doesn't do that with us. God is able to sympathize with us because he has been tempted in every way like we have. He goes, I know, it's hard. It's difficult. Now, which is worse? To be tempted and fall to the temptation or to be tempted and resist the temptation? It's harder to resist, right? You ever had to resist donuts? You know, those types of things. Chocolate, you know, having to resist it. Oh, just go ahead. It's only a small kiss, even though it's a full bag. It's just a little kiss. You can eat the whole bag. You get tempted on these minor issues. We also get tempted to sin big. When we do and we fall, God says the righteous man will fall seven times and get back up, which means he will just keep on getting back up, keep on rising, all because of God's grace and mercy. Otherwise, there would be condemnation. That's the gift that is being talked about here. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so that's what God is communicating to us As Paul was writing to the Hebrew Christians that we have this grace. We don't have to worry about the high priest going in and doing things wrong and following all these details. You know, living a life of holiness is what we're called to do, but it doesn't grant us entrance into heaven. Did you hear that? Living a life of holiness is what we ought to do, but it doesn't grant us entrance into heaven. The only way we get into heaven is by the grace of God. There's no works that we can do where God has to turn to us and say, you get to come in because you've been good. No, Scripture declares that we're all bad and we're all prone to sin. My prayer for you is that you can grab hold of this truth that no matter how many times we fail, God's grace is faithful and he is there. No matter how many times we sin, we don't fall under a cloud of condemnation because we know as believers... We go back to God, to Jesus Christ, and we say, will you please forgive me of my sin? And he's faithful and just to do that, to forgive us our sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the grace that you give to us, the mercy that is available. We understand that there is a judgment to come. We ask that you would help us to live according to that thought that one day we'll stand before you and have to give an account. Those who are saved and those who are not saved. All of us, Lord, will return to you and you will judge righteously. We thank you for that grace and mercy. And Father, may everyone who is in here experience the grace that only you can give. And may they apprehend the mercy that is only available from you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And the church said...